This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. I would go ahead and ask you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 19. And while you're finding that, uh, let me just also chime in on, on Silas. We don't want to give him too much of a big head. But at 90 years old, if he gets a big head, so be it. Um, but it has been an honor to be able to work with him. And someone pointed out yesterday, they said, you know what, you'll probably never, ever, ever, ever again have a staff member in their 90s. And that's probably true. I hadn't thought of it that way, to have an associate pastor that's 90 years old. But anyway, uh, Brother Silas, it has been an honor to be able to have you in this church, an honor to work with you on the staff. We love you and respect you and just uh, salute you. Thank you, my brother and my friend. Today, is, as we announced last week, we begin a, a new series of lessons entitled Right in Your Eye. And, of course, Scripture will fuel this series, but as always, uh, I, I'm not smart enough to come up with anything originally, but I draw from a number of other resources, and I won't mention them, but there, there are several that I went to last week just to help give me additional insight. But today uh, we're going to kick things off with a story that I think is perhaps one of, if not the most outrageous story in the entire Bible. Now, I... Um, I'll just kind of be transparent with you. I got in the middle of this and I thought, uh-oh, I might have bit off more than I can chew. And I started asking different pastors, you know, Beckham and I don't know who all, Painter and all of them and that are a lot smarter than I am. And I said, have you ever spoken on this lesson? They said, uh-uh. <laughs> and I went home to faith and I said, honey, I, I'm not sure if, if I had another message to preach, I'd probably do it if I could back out of this. But I, I think I'm committed. It's kind of like that airplane. You know, you're taking off and you're getting to the end of the runway and you're committed. You've got to go and you've got to go up. And so we're going to go up. We may crash land, but then we're going, we're going to try to take off this morning. Um, now, this story that we're going to cover is, is a little bit long. It covers three chapters. It's a little bit complicated. And, and if I happen to lose you, please know it's not your fault. It's my fault. I, I will take responsibility if I don't do a very good job. But, but if I do lose you, just go back to Judges chapters 19 through 21 and study it. And, and don't just settle for not understanding. There are some stories in the Bible we just settle and say, well, I just don't understand that we move on. Don't just settle for that. Study it. Make sure that you do comprehend what I believe uh, the, the lesson is here. Now, a, a good part of this series, even though I don't have it all mapped out yet, will come from the book of Judges. And for you longtime members, just for your information, back 11 years ago, and I checked my records, I, I try to keep detailed records, uh, but to be exact, on June 26, 2007, I began a series of messages from the book of Judges. But this will not be that same series. Not that you would remember, and, and I don't say this disrespectfully, but most of you don't remember what I preached last week. In fact, I don't even remember what I preached last week. Uh, so you don't for sure remember what I preached 10 or 15 years ago. So I, I could repeat this series from 2007 and, and most wouldn't know the difference, but, but as a pastor, I really make an effort to stay fresh and, and not become mentally and spiritually lazy. And so most of the time, even though, you know, on occasion I will repeat something, but most of the time I try to stay away from preaching reruns. Now, the book of Judges is a history of the 330 years or so 
from when Israel moved into the promised land up to when they became a monarchy. In other words, a monarchy, a monarchy is just when they went to a system of kings where someone ruled until they died. And generally a family member would take over at that point. But, but that's kind of what a, a monarchy is. And, and, um, and for these 330 years after they moved in until they went to a system of kings, they basically functioned as a commonwealth. With reference to our country's history, they were in some ways like the 13 original colonies that we had in our country uh, that that had no central government. And so Israel, even though they had a common ancestry, they had a common religion, they they had common background, um, they, they had no king. They had no centralized government. And, and during this time, they were supposed to view God as their king. And, and God would raise up judges as their authority, not as kings. But they would try to keep the, uh, the people on track. But, but here's what happened during these 330 years. The nation of Israel abandoned God's law. And do you want to know why? Uh, because they had something in common with you. You know what that was? They didn't like to be told what to do. And so basically everybody did what, whatever they wanted. And, and there is a verse that, that appears several times in Judges that, that characterizes this time period. They did what was right in their own eyes. And so they would go through this cycle. They would disobey God's law. It would result in disaster. And, and they would cry out for help and God would send a deliverer. And then they would go back and disobey again and there would be a disaster, cry out for help. And and they would say, God, I'm never, ever, 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 ever going to do that again. And God would send a deliverer. Now, before we start, um, could I, I I know we don't like to do this, but could I urge all of us to be real? Could we just take off our halos? Everybody reach up and take off our halos, okay? Just take it off right now. Sorry to say it like it is, but everyone, even if you think you are a super saint, at some point, you disobeyed God's law. Yes, you did. And I did too. And many times we got in a jam over it. And, and then we started crying out for help. And, and somebody came along and, and they gave us a break. They bailed us out of jail. They paid our fine. They helped us get into rehab. Our wife or our husband gave us a second chance. And we said, I'll never, ever, ever, ever do that again. And, and we didn't, remember? For about a week. Well, the book of Judges is about a nation that for 330 years got in trouble, got delivered, got in trouble, got delivered, got in trouble, got delivered, got in trouble, got delivered. Well, then at the very end of the book of Judges is this outrageous story. And normally in a series, what makes good sense is to start at the beginning of the book. But you know that as your pastor, I don't always do what makes good sense. And so we're going to begin with the end of the book. And then next week, we're going to bounce to the beginning of the book. And actually, we're going to pick up our reading with the last chapter in in, in Joshua, in fact, this is your homework, uh, I believe it's Joshua 24, the last chapter there, and we're going to work into the first couple of chapters of Judges, so that's, that's your assignment for this, this, this next week. Um, and then, you know, who knows, we're going to be bouncing around, uh, hopefully God knows where we're going after that, because I certainly don't. Um, one more thing before we get to our lesson, let me answer a question that 
some of you are going to ask in about 15 minutes. You're going to ask this question, Pastor, why would you take time on a Sunday morning to build a lesson around a story that is so disturbing? You're going to be asking this, I guarantee you. I mean, Pastor, can't you, uh, out of all the Bible, can't you find anything else to preach on that's more uplifting? Well, here's the reason we're spending time on this. This story illustrates what happens to a nation, what happens to a church, what happens to a family that decides, you know what, I'm just going to do what I think is right. And it's okay if you do what you think is right, I won't judge you. And what's right for me may not be right for you, what's right for you may not be right for me, but it's all good. And today's story will illustrate how Israel doing what was right in their own eyes resulted in a cesspool of violence, bloodshed, and immorality. The story begins like this, Judges chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, if you were raised in church, you grew up hearing and more than likely making jokes about concubines. And a concubine was, and and I really don't like this phrase, but in the vernacular of our modern day talk, a concubine was kind of like a, a girlfriend with privileges, if you know what I mean. And yes, there was some commitment, and and sometimes she was kind of like a servant, but a concubine was pretty much there for the pleasure of the husband. And this was a practice that was somewhat accepted by the Israelites, but it was not God's plan, because God's original plan was the marriage of one man to one woman until death separate them. Amen? Amen? But the Israelites had picked this up from the Canaanites. They'd copied them. But anyway, this Levite went down to Bethlehem, found a girlfriend slash concubine, took her back to his home, verse 2, but she was unfaithful to him. More than likely, he finds out about it. She decides she better hit the road. So it says she left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. Well, the Bible says, and by the way, I'm going to partially tell and partially read this story just to, and I'll just kind of try to put it together. But the Bible says that four months go by and, and we don't know if this Levite just got over being angry or if he got lonely or, or, or what, but he decided, you know what? I'm going to go get my concubine. So he travels south through Benjamin down to Judea into Bethlehem. And let me just show you a map and you can't really see it very well, but here's Ephraim where the Levite is from. This is the tribe of Benjamin, and he comes on down to Judah, and Bethlehem is right there. I can't keep it still, but that's, that's kind of uh, his route. Well, the Levite shows up at his concubine's father's house. He knocks on the door, and evidently the concubine answers, and you can imagine how awkward that would have been. Verse 3, she took him into her father's house, And when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. Now, to me, this seems a little bit strange that she would let him in. It even seems more strange that the Levite's father-in-law, and and, and, and I I guess really he would be the concubine-in-law father. I don't know what you'd call this guy. But the scripture refers to him as the father-in-law. He invites him in, in verse 4, says his father-in-law, 
the girl's father prevailed upon him to stay, so he remained with him three days, which I think would be a little bit awkward, eating and drinking and sleeping there. Well, after three days, the Levite thought, I need to get my girl and take her back to my house and see if we can rebuild our relationship. So, verse 5, on the fourth day, they got up early. He prepared to leave, but the girl's father said to his son-in-law, refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. Well, the father-in-law started playing games with this Levite, and for the next three days or so, the Levite would get up early in the morning with intentions of leaving. The father-in-law would say, hey, hang around until after lunch, and then... After that, he'd say, hey, it's too late, so stick around for another night. And finally, after a few days of this, the Levite is like, we are leaving. So he loads up the donkeys. He and his concubine and his male servant leave Bethlehem. They start heading back up to Ephraim. Well, since they left late in the day, they're, they're not up the road very far when the sun begins to set. And let's pick up our reading, verse 11. When they were near Jebus, also pronounced Jebus, and the day was almost gone. The servant said to his master, come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. Now, evidently, it wasn't safe or appropriate, appropriate to spend the night there. So the Levite said in verse 12, uh, no, we won't go into an alien city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on. And the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them into his home for the night. Now, let me show you again kind of the, the route here. They, they've been down here, Bethlehem. And so they're heading up, and there's Jerusalem right there, just kind of southern Benjamin. And then right here is Gibeah and uh, Ramah. And so they're wanting to get a little bit further because they're not alien cities. At that time, Jerusalem was an alien city and, and didn't feel comfortable there. Well, let, let me just uh, let me just kind of go back to the scripture where it says they went and sat in the city square, but no one took them into, into their home for the night. The way things worked back then is that if you were on a trip and you passed through a town around sundown, and remember, these are villages. There are no hotels. These are small villages. And so if you wanted to spend the night in a town, you were supposed to go to the town square and sit down and wait. And in this culture, hospitality was so important. When people would see you, they would go over to you and introduce themselves and invite you into their home, and especially if you were an Israelite. And, and the Levite wasn't a Benjamite, but he was still an Israelite. Well, here in this town, nobody shows any interest in giving them a bed. By now, night was falling. But about this time, a man who had been working outside of the city gates, probably tending his flock on the hillsides, he comes through the city gates, he's headed home, he sees these strangers there in the town square, he goes over to them and says in verse 20, you're welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square so he took them into his house, fed his donkeys after they'd washed their feet. They had something to eat and drink. Okay, so far so good. You with me? Everybody with me? Okay. Fasten your seatbelts because this is where the story really gets turbulent. They've been invited to this old man's house. They finish the evening meal. All of a sudden, the house is surrounded by wicked men. 
Verse 22, while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house, pounding on the door. They shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have. And and I won't even finish that verse because it's so graphic and wicked. You can read it in your Bibles. And, and, And just as a clarification, this was not an issue of homosexuality, even though it was that. But it was also an issue of humiliation. The Canaanite men, oftentimes to humi- humiliate another man, would basically do this. In fact, this carried on into the Greek culture. And I was reading possibly even on into the Roman culture as just kind of an act of humiliation. So these men, as they're pounding on the door, they were essentially saying, we don't like strangers. There was a reason nobody invited you in. We don't want outsiders in our town. And so they said to the man who had taken the guests in, you need to bring the Levite out. We're we're going to teach him a lesson. When he leaves, he'll tell people, you know, don't go through Gibeah. They don't like outsiders. Stay away from them. Well, verse 23, the owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. And But then the story takes bizarre even to a new level. The owner said in verse 24, look, here's my virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine. I will bring them out to you now and, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine, sent her outside to them, and they, and again, I'm not going to read it, nor even put up on the screen the last part of the verse because it's absolutely horrible. Well, after a night of wickedness and abusing this poor concubine, verse 27 says, when her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way. There lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. She was dead. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. Well, they make their way back to Ephraim. And and this man, as you can imagine, he is so angry. First of all, the laws of hospitality were violated. Secondly, his concubine had been gang raped. Thirdly, she was murdered in the most brutal way. And so the Levite decides something must be done. He writes a letter to the leaders of all the 12 tribes. And he documents what happened. And and he said, this is what took place. And, and he hires some servants to take these letters to all the 12 tribes. But then he must think to himself, you know, wait a minute. I'm a nobody. And so probably no one will believe this wild story. And, and if they happen to believe it because I'm a nobody, <clears throat> they won't do anything about it. So he comes up with an idea. Verse 29, when he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts. And he packages them up, attaches the letter. The Bible says he sends them into all the areas of Israel. Well, a few days later, the leaders in all the 12 tribes get their mail for the day. They see they have a package. 
Probably, just like you, they were excited to open the package. But their excitement turns into shock and then horror as they open the package and find an arm or a leg or a hand or a foot or whatever. And then they read the attached letter that tells about the terrible atrocity that had been perpetrated by their Benjamite brothers. The nation is outraged. They say, oh my word, we have sunk to an all-time low. And here's what Scripture says in verse 30. Everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been seen or done. Not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it. So here's what happened. Judges chapter 20 verse 1. Then all the Israelites from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came out as one man assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 soldiers armed with swords. The Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. And so the Levites there, and he goes through every detail. And and then in verse 7, he says, now all you Israelites speak up and give your verdict. And and it was unanimous because verse verse 8 says, all the people rose as one man saying, none of us will go home. No, not one of us will return to his house. And later on, it even goes on and says that we will not give our daughters in marriage to the Benjamites. But, are you tracking? Here's one really important detail. Remember, the Levite had sent a body part and a letter to all the 12 tribes, which means that even the Benjamites, the tribe where this took place, had gotten a package. Well, how did the Benjamites react? Well, as the saying goes, Blood is thicker than water. And they said, we will defend our Benjamite brothers. We don't care what they did. So, in verse 15, at once, the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their towns in addition to 700 chosen men from those living, living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So that's probably kind of like the special forces, you know, the rangers, the seals, whatever. They were special operations guys. These were the the good ones. Well, war breaks out. You have 11 tribes against the one tribe of Benjamin. By the odds, what did it say, 400,000 soldiers against a little under 27,000? You would think the battle would be over fairly quickly. And it was, but not in the way that you think. Listen to how the first day of battle went in Judges chapter 20, verse 20. The men of Israel went out to fight the Benjamites and took up battle positions against them at Gibeah. The Benjamites came out of Gibeah and cut down 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. Hmm, that didn't go very well, did it? How about the second day? Verse 24. Then the Israelites drew near to Benjamin the second day. This time when the Benjamites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. Hmm. That didn't go very well either. As you can imagine, the 11 tribes are totally devastated. 
Well, in verse 26, we read where then all, then the Israelites, all the people went up to Bethel. And there they sat weeping before the Lord. They'd lost 14,000 men two days. They fasted all that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. And they said, Lord, what do we do? Do we just give up? What do we do, Lord? In verse 28, the Lord responded, go for tomorrow. I will give them into your hands. And they come up with a sneaky strategy. And you see this other places in the Old Testament. But the Israelites attacked the same way they had the past two days. And the Benjamites come out. And the Israelites act like they're retreating. And the Benjamites follow them away from the city. And at that time, another group of Israelites, they come from the opposite direction, overrun the city and torch it. Well, the Benjamites happen to look back and see their city is on fire. They panic. They run back to the city. But by now it's too late. The 11 tribes have the upper hand. And these 11 tribes, they're so angry. Remember, they've lost at least 40,000 men. They're angry, out of control. They burn the city down to the ground. They kill men, women, children, and animals. Let's read it, verse 46. On that day, 25,000 Benjamite swordsmen fell, all of them valiant fighters. So basically, everybody in this tribe is dead except, verse 47, but 600 men turned and fled into the desert to the rock of Rimmon, where they stayed four months. So you have 600 survivors from this entire tribe. They escaped to the desert. But when you have no moral compass guiding you, here's what happens. You begin to be led by your emotions rather than principles. And the 11 tribes are so angry. Listen to what they did. Verse 48, the men of Israel went back to Benjamin, put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found all the towns they came across, they set on fire. And so they didn't just take their anger out on the town <coughs> where that had happened. They destroyed everybody, everything associated with the entire tribe of Benjamin. They leave it a smoldering wasteland of death. Well, after the heat of the battle is over, some time passes, it begins to dawn on the leaders of the 11 tribes of Israel. Oh, no. We've just wiped out an entire tribe of Israel. And they were our brothers. Now instead of 12 tribes, there are only 11 tribes. Listen in on their anguish. Just try to put yourself there in Judges chapter 21 verse 2. The people went to Bethel where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. Oh Lord, the God of Israel, they cried. Why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? And, and they begin to repent and they say, God, we're sorry for the genocide. We, we've wiped out an entire tribe of our brothers. Well, then finally, someone raises their hand and says, wait, wait, wait a minute. We, we, didn't, we didn't eliminate everyone. Remember, 600 of them fled to the desert. They said, perhaps we can coax them back. And then someone else raises their hand and says, yeah, but they're all men. They won't have any wives. And we made an oath that we won't let any of our daughters marry a Benjamite man. And, 
And then somebody else raises their hand and said, hey, I'm just thinking out loud. And, And you understand, I'm just kind of reading between the lines here. Were any of our cities noncommittal and didn't send any warriors for this mission? And someone said, hmm. You know, come to think of it, I don't think, I don't think I saw anybody here from Jabesh Gilead. And they said, hey, Jabesh Gilead, anybody here from Jabesh Gilead? Raise your hand. Yell present, here. Silence, nobody raised their hand. So the 11 tribes put together an army of 12,000 and sent them to the city of Jabesh Gilead. Let me show you where that is. That is actually, and you can't really see it, but it's up right there. Right there. And they sent the army with these instructions because they didn't join together with us on this mission. Here's what we want you to do. We want you to kill every man, every woman. We want you to burn the city, but... We want you to save all the young unmarried virgin girls. And what we'll do is we'll give these girls as wives to these 600 men who are coming in from the desert. And that way the tribe of Benjamin won't be completely annihilated. And and so that's what they do. They kill everyone. They kill everything in Jabesh Gilead except for the young virgins. They bring them back and they coax these 600 warriors out of the desert and say, we got some bad news. We've got some good news. And then we got more bad news. The bad news is we've killed your parents, your brothers, your sisters. We burned down all your cities. The good news is we've kidnapped some women that you can take as your wives. But then the rest of the bad news is there are 600 of you and only 400 women. So not everybody gets a wife. Well, someone else then had a brainstorm. Hey, they say, you know, in a few days there will be a festival in Shiloh. And as part of the festival, all the young ladies from that area come out and do a dance in the field and... So I'm just brainstorming here, but how about this idea? We'll let the 200 men who didn't get a wife hide in the fields. And when the young ladies come and do their dance in the field, the 200 men can rush out and kidnap a wife. And we'll tell everyone we haven't violated our oath because we didn't give our daughters to be married. They were actually kidnapped. And they do that. They hide in the fields. These Benjamites who were left out of the wife lottery the first time around... They run out, they grab themselves a woman. And then all 600 of these guys with their new wives march back into the smoldering ruins of the land of Benjamin to begin repopulating this decimated tribe. And then the book of Judges ends. There's no hero, there's no... Well, and they lived happily ever after. It ends with this verse. In those days, Israel had no king, so the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. What a gruesome and tragic story. Now, obviously, when your parents would read you a bedtime Bible story at night, they never said, hey, let me read you a really cool story about the concubine and the chainsaw massacre or whatever you want to call this story. There's nothing cool about their story. There's nothing good about this story, except it serves as a powerful reminder what happens when a people decide to do what is right in their own eyes. Now, before we close, 
Let me review a few instances of how Israel did what was right in their own eyes. First of all, the men of Gibeah were like, hey, look, we don't like strangers. This is our town. We have the right to decide who stays here and who doesn't. So send that guy out here. We're going to teach him a lesson. This is our town. We have a right to do whatever we want. Well, then the Levite sent his concubine out there and his attitude was probably, you know, honey, if you'd have been faithful to me, we wouldn't be in this jam. So this is really your fault. And and I kind of hate to do this, but it's only right that I turn you out to the guys. And then when she was murdered, he thinks, you know, there's got to be justice. So I think I'll chop up her body and that'll get people's attention. And that's the right thing to do. And then the whole nation comes together. And when they, they finally get the upper hand, they overreact and kill men, women, children, animals, because at that time, <clears throat> that seemed like the right thing to do. And then they say, oh, my word, wait a minute. Jabesh Gilead. They didn't help us out. <clears throat> we'll teach them a lesson and, and exterminate everybody except for the young ladies. And then we'll give them to the men coming in from the desert. That's the right thing to do. I mean, at every point along the way, because they had no moral compass, they violated principles of human rights, decency, morality. And, and here's why we need to talk about this. Because, in, and please don't get mad. But there's some of this in you. And there's some of this in me. In fact, this is kind of the ugly underbelly of the American dream. We want freedom to do what we want when we want. Now, because we're civilized, we add one little condition as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Right? But think about this. The thing that has mastered you, whether it's debt, a habit, a relationship, alcohol, drugs, or some other kind of addiction. Think about this. This began as an expression of your freedom. You said, I want to do this. I want to drink or smoke or buy this or do this or whatever. I'm going to do what I want to do. But have you ever thought about this? Now, You can't do what you want to do because you've been mastered by the very things that were an expression of your freedom. And so now you can't do what you want to do when you want to do it, how you want to do it, because you've become a slave to what was an expression of your freedom. But let me end up with some good news. And you ready for some good news? (laughs) Actually, it's not good news. It's great news. God, whom we have been invited to call our Father, Abba, (laughs) precious Father, He wants to step into the chaos, even the chaos that we have created. He wants to step into the chaos and, and save us. And He's there saying this, He's saying, I won't excuse your sin. But I will forgive it and deliver you. That's the great news. I'm not going to excuse your sin, but I will forgive it and deliver you. 
And so maybe that's why we had to suffer through this disturbing lesson, just so we could once again be reminded that God will step into our chaos. Forgive us and deliver us. Before you go, uh, it is our privilege right now to uh, just bring in Brian and Vicki. Would you please make them feel welcome to Cedar County? Good morning, Pastor Joe. It's been a long time since we've seen you. Man, that's, man, that's, he's good. He is good. He preaches the Word of God, and they love him here. Amen. <laughs> One ain't then, dude. You just got tired. <laughs> no, 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 no. He preaches the Word of God, and sometimes it's hard to hear. It is hard to hear because you know what? God is not just a God of love. He is a God that is just. Amen? Man, you could have found something else to preach on. Well, you know what? You can't avoid things in the Bible. You've got to take the Bible for what it is and who wrote it and when he wrote it and how he wrote it and who he wrote it to. There ain't nobody in here going to mender that. <laughs> well, okay. Brother Joe, Pastor Joe preaches the Word, and it's good to hear you still preach the Word. Thank you very much. Because there's a lot of pastors turning to things that are not the truth of God's Word. Amen? Be glad you can sit under it as hard as it is to sit under some sermons. We need them. Amen? Man, this place is looking good. This place is looking awesome. And this is just one service. They got two. Ooh. What you laughing at, lady? <laughs> She's happy that the conky that got chopped up. All right. <laughs> no, 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 no. You see, you can only stand so much serious and you got to have a little bit of a comic break. Amen. Well, the comic break starts this week. We'll be serious too, but I promise you, if you need a good laugh, and or somebody you know needs a good laugh, bring them because we got some puppets that are messed up. Hey, well, well, I don't mean messed up. I mean enjoy life. You know, I enjoy life. Pastor Joe enjoys life. He's looking good, ain't he? He don't look a day over seventy. Ah! Oh, you gonna laugh at that, big boy? Amen, <laughs> and then cut his throat. <laughs> Okay, whatever. We're going to have a great time this week, but Jesus will be at the forefront of the great time. Amen. So please come and bring friends, bring enemies, because you know what the best way to make an enemy into a friend is teach them about Jesus. Amen. It's a wonderful way. Now you tell them bye. We're going to go. Pastor Joe's got a few more things he needs to take care of. Just tell them bye. I like it, Slice. Okay, well, you'll get to come back before the week's out. I like Brother Joe. They love Brother Joe, too. That's the second time y'all had a chance and you blew it. <laughs> okay. Maybe they're a little slow. No, no, no. We're leaving now. You come this week and we'll have an awesome time. Amen. Man, you messed up. Would you stop? <laughs> we'll see you this evening at hey. 6 o'clock. You're dismissed. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.